RBN. Hello, everyone. Back here with Pod BN after taking a little break. Hopefully, you were pleasantly surprised to see this pop up in your iTunes feed. Back here at Little Beaver Brewery. I'm sipping on Space Crystals, which is always delicious. It's a pretty sweet beer, but tastes really good. And uh, also, Little Beaver has changed their menu. So, some of the things that uh, any of the long term listeners are going to know that I love the uh, Little Beaver Burger. That is no longer on the menu, but they do have a That Damn Burger, D A M. Don't flag me, iTunes. It's the That Damn Burger. Um, it's pretty similar to it. It's got three patties, though, smashed. It's really juicy, pretty delicious. So, still got a good burger to come in for to satisfy you. They got pizzas. They got the same appetizers. They got the Barra Tacos. So uh, definitely still a place to come to grab a drink and something tasty to eat. Today, Noah Tang is joining me. Hey, Noah. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to PodBN. Yeah, nice to be here. Looking forward to talking to you a little bit because uh, also, as anyone knows who's listened to the podcast, I am a big Strong Town supporter and so want to just... Uh, hear more about that shared passion that we have. Absolutely. First, before we start, though, can you just introduce yourself to people? Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, my name's Noah Tang. Uh, This is actually my fourth year teaching at Bloomington High School. I teach American history. I teach world history, so freshman, sophomore. Uh, But I've been in Bloomington Normal for about uh, seven, eight years now. I actually went to school at ISU. Um, and I fell in love with the town, right? I don't plan on moving away anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's because I grew up in a very sterile suburb where you really needed to get a, use a car to go anywhere. Um, but my time in Bloomington and Normal, I've been able to live, you know, 70% of the time without a car. Go to work, go downtown, go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Um, now, as a history teacher and as a history student myself at ISU for my undergrad and my master's degree, I love focusing on local history. And that's another thing that really activates my student engagement in my classes is showing them what this town looked like during major historical events. And when I show them these pictures, they're like, whoa. Where are these buildings now? And I'm like, oh, uh, that's a parking lot. Or uh, they tore that down. Or, you know, that's a that's a gas station now. Things like that. And mm-hmm. I think th- this hasn't activated my urban a- activism. I've, I've been an activist for uh, as long as I've been in college. But it, it, it really has kind of focused my efforts in on, on Bloomington Normal and things I could change uh, in the city itself. Yeah. So, so you started off by talking about the, the attracts you that you don't have to have a car to live here. Um, tell me more more about that. Why is that an important thing to you? Yeah, I mean, uh, especially as a college student coming in here, where you know it's not necessarily the easiest to have a car on campus mm-hmm. and kind of make it that way. Directly around ISU, it's extremely walkable. You you got uptown, you've got the quad, right? You got Constitution Trail. Um, and I, I, I experienced just being able to live without being kind of boxed in, mm-hmm. if 
that makes sense. Yeah, that was your first experience with that from when you were 18? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've traveled a lot different places. And, you know, the classic American tourist saying, going to Europe and say, oh, I love how walkable walkable and beautiful the city centers are. And they come back to the United States and like, oh, I got to drive 45 minutes to work. (laughs) Um, I feel like college towns naturally have that walkability, you know, bones there. So. Yeah. And you found that then. That's definitely not present everywhere in Bloomington Normal, so... Oh, absolutely but not. But you've now settled somewhere in Bloomington where that same option is available to you. Yeah, my, my one goal when I was uh, trying to find a house in the pandemic was it needs to be in a walkable and older neighborhood. So mm-hmm. I decided on a house in Dimmitz Grove neighborhood, which has the uh, longest uh, active neighborhood association. It's two blocks from the library, two blocks from the city hall. I can ride my bike from my house using Constitution Trail going all the way to BHS, all the way to ISU, without having to cross any major streets. Yeah. Um, so basically this summer, I use my car so rarely that my battery almost died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the uh, Demis Grove is a really cool neighborhood association. Anyone who's not familiar with it should... Uh, be good to learn more about it. Um, to my knowledge, is the only neighborhood association that has a neighborhood plan, which I, I think every neighborhood should have. Uh, it's a really impressive document, and some really neat, just small but impactful things that, that they've done, like putting re involved or aware of putting the like historical plaques up in front yeah, of these houses. Absolutely. You, yeah. I'm talk a little bit. Talk a little bit about those if people haven't seen them. Yeah. So. Dimmitz Grove is obviously one of the oldest neighborhoods uh, in the entire city, uh, and back in the oh, mid-late 1800s. Oh, thank you so much, oh, Noah. What'd you get? I got the uh, Cuban. Oh, that looks, that looks that, really good. It does look really good. Yeah, they went through a... Uh, we got it. Yep. We, uh, there was a brief period of time where that was off the menu, and it made me pretty sad, because that, that is a good sandwich. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Um, well, if you need to, um, I'll let you talk for a bit, and then if you need to take a break to munch, I can share some of my thoughts, too. No, absolutely. <laughs> um, so it was, uh, Dimmitz Grove was originally where a lot of the upper crust of Bloomington lived, like the business owners, the doctors, all on that East Grove Street corridor. That's actually a, a National Historic District. So all those houses uh, between uh, Main Street and you go all the way over to Clinton, a lot of them are in uh, pristine condition. Um historic overlay district it's beautiful um and there's like victorian mansions up there um that's the part of the neighborhood that's in the best condition in my opinion because that is the national historic district Mm -hmm. uh but as an association we have attempted over the years to preserve our our history throughout the entire uh neighborhood so the boundaries of the neighborhood go from uh gridley uh to the west to Clinton on the east. In the north, we've got Washington Street. In the south, uh, we've got Oakland. Uh, so it's a very diverse community. And one way to develop that community identity is to yeah have those plaques on uh, in front of those houses. Uh, and a lot of those homeowners actually did their own research. And as a history um, grad student right now, one of my uh, projects this summer was to help conduct a historical survey of Dimmitz Grove. Oh, I didn't know you did that. Okay. Yeah, and sure. so the project I'm trying to work on is we're looking at every single house 
in the neighborhood trying to figure out their ownership and tenancy all the way back to when it was originally platted. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a lot of really interesting stories to tell in that neighborhood. Sure. The house that I live in is, right now, especially, it's 125 years old, built by one of the uh, secretaries of the YMCA, which I find very interesting because uh, as a side job, I also work at the YMCA. Yeah. 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 So just a lot of history. For sure. Yeah, the, um, the area that comes to my mind, oh gosh, what street is it? Um, that, uh, that Clay Dooley used to be there on the corner and they've moved out. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is the corner of Grove and Gridley, I think. Grove, yeah. Grove is what I was thinking of, yeah. If, if people want to see those, I know that there's a few on Grove. You could kind of walk down there and get a good feel of what that community has to offer. Uh, emphasis on walk there, right? Like you actually can... Uh, you are able to uh, <laughs> to walk down the street comfortably and safely. And, I think the, the one thing that sets our neighborhood apart from other neighborhoods is the fact that most of the street trees that were planted over 100 years ago, a lot of them are still intact. Sure. And it provides a beautiful canopy uh, for those houses. And it's, it uh, especially in the hot days, the temperature difference underneath those trees is insane mm-hmm. where you're just compared to standing out in the sun oh yeah um, yeah so it's a very beautiful neighborhood yeah yeah it's something that um you know walkability you can kind of think of it as something that's sort of a a preference that people have and i mean it is a it is a preference i share your preference in mm-hmm. that regard um i picked my house because i could walk to work from it i live right across the street from state farm mm-hmm. and when i came in i was my second son had just been born when I moved to that house, and so I spent the next many years being able to walk home and see them at lunch. That was an important thing for me to be able to still maintain connection with them. Um, so, I mean, to some degree, it's a, it's a preference, but you mentioned the financial component of it. Owning a car is more expensive than people understand it to be because they've never not owned a car before, right? Yeah. Um, so there's that, and then... Um, I also think about the community aspect of a walkable neighborhood. Have have you found that to be very different where you live now versus where you grew up? I think one of my favorite things is the fact that everyone's always outside, including adults, elderly people. They're sitting on their, their, their stoop out front or their porch. There are uh, always a bunch of kids outside on their uh, little bikes. I know all of my neighbors, essentially, mm-hmm. even though... At least half of the street that I live on are rentals, right? I know the la- I know the neighbors. I know the landlords. When I was growing up uh, in the suburbs, maybe I knew the person who lived right next door to me, right? Like we were on speaking terms, but all of the houses were so far apart from each other, and all of the you know amenities outside for these houses were in the backyards. Mm-hmm. You drive up into your garage, close that door behind you, and then you're in your house. It really is not good for fostering community. Yeah. Whereas here, all the garages in Dimmitts Grove, for the most part, are detached, and a lot of people park on the street, so you're going to have to walk <laughs> from the street to your house. And people are just generally more friendly. And you got like, front porches, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed it with my children um, when I know all my neighbors where I live too, and 
I feel comfortable with them now going and playing outside. And there's times when my neighbors need to step in to tell them to cut something out or to help them with something. You know, um, if my son's shoe's untied, you can pretty much ask anyone on the block to help tie a shoe, and they'll do it. Uh, one time, one of my kids climbed up a tree, and then the thing he was using to climb up it fell over. And he was just sort of stuck up in a tree, and my neighbor saw from her window and came out, and it's like, Asa, come on, get down. I'll get you down there. Um, another time, my kids were doing something they shouldn't have been doing in my other neighbor's front yard, and they they know who I was. They just sent me a message like, say, hey, uh, I know they were just curious, but the things they were touching were delicate. Could you please remind them not to do that anymore? Yeah. You know, I... These are the types of interactions that I would want them to have with other adults, right? Because they can then feel comfortable in the whole neighborhood instead of just feeling like they have to just be confined within my house. Um, And the cars go slowly enough that they can mess around and they're not going to get... The cars on my street don't really go more than like 20, 25, so there's not really any significant safety issues there too. So all things I'm sure, I know you don't have children, but I think those types of things make sense to you, right? Absolutely. Um, This also, I mean, same thing with the community aspect with uh, Demons Grove. We've got monthly neighborhood meetings in people's backyards, right? Mm -hmm. And you just get to know so many more people that way. But also, I was building a chicken coop in my backyard by myself and I really needed some help, so I literally just knocked on the doors of a bunch of my neighbors, and they actually came out and spent the whole morning just covered in sweat, helping me move my huge chicken coop <laughs> to where it was supposed to be. Yeah. Um, so it's a wonderful place, and I really want there to be more places like that in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. Um, and the type of development that we're seeing now and in the last 30 years or so, uh, it's, it's, it's not the same. It's more of that sterile stuff. In fact, one of my lessons for my American history class, I compare post-war and pre-war developments in Bloomington Normal, and I I ask my kids, all right, just looking at Google Maps, post-war, pre-war, and they're very easily able to tell, especially those newer ones. Yeah. I think it's important when having this discussion, people can get defensive about where they live, and I, you know, I definitely have opinions, and I wouldn't plan to live anywhere outside of Veterans Parkway. Um, but I can understand the appeal of it. I mean, my first home was like that. That was it was in North Normal. It was a place like that. It was, it's affordable. It's new, so it's well maintained. I didn't know how to take care of a home, so there wasn't any like home maintenance burden really. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, you know, there, there is, after, I mean, you're going to know more about this than I do, but my understanding is after World War II, there was a lot of people that needed homes. There was a, there was a baby boom. There was people coming back from the war. There was, uh, like, a need for housing and a big desire for having houses and a desire for cars. And so what we designed was able to quickly meet that need that people had and grow according to what people wanted so sort of now in retrospect we're seeing that maybe that there's some things missing there that that could be adjusted (laughs) yeah absolutely the other thing is right the growth of bloomington also matches the growth and prominence of the car insurance industry Uh so after world war ii everyone wants a car now sure state farm and all those other uh insurance companies 
need to grow as well. And, you know, car insurance industry, cars, they, uh, I think it was a sad day when they moved out of their downtown offices. Because mm-hmm. um, I feel like that was a staple of the city. Those, that big sign on yeah. the, uh, the west side of that building. But Yeah, I was very sad when the company decided to close that. Um, I went in it and toured it a few times. The, the history of it and the, the connection to the past that that had. Um, especially that followed up pretty quickly with COVID where we have even stopped going in me being a state farm employee mm-hmm. we've got we go in the buildings that we do have less and less and less there's much less identification with state farm with a physical place of history now yeah it's kind of more nebulous as what we are we're like a, a group of 60,000 people spread across the country who are you know trying to, to do something that um, yeah that connection to history is, is that was a tough hit yeah, mm-hmm. and I and I think this is happening all over the country. I think it's called the uh, the deplacing mm-hmm. of America, where everything's starting to look the exact same. If you look outside, every, every single road starts to look like uh, Veterans Parkway. Yeah, Veterans Parkways everywhere. You know, yeah, those uh, what are they called? Billboard buildings, where the entire building essentially acts as a billboard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And you're really losing this idea of local culture and local identity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and now with um, with so many people working from home too, this idea that uh, we're getting into like zoning stuff now. But one of the things, one of the ideas also post World War II is that residential should be separate from commercial. Mm-hmm. That you want to like, which should be separate from your uh, entertainment. So like you. You work here, you play here, you shop here, right? And so you've got the mall, you've got a whole strip of, like, commercial development areas, and then you've got pure residential areas. Now that so many people are working from home, though, I've been thinking, like, well, one, there's commercial activity going on in residential areas now. Um, It's just only, like, people who can do their job for their computer can do it, but if someone wants to start, like, a... Like a, I don't know, sewing business out of their house, then mm-hmm. they can't do that. If they actually want not to legally, have, not legally. <laughs> um, but if I just want to spend forty hours a week on my computer doing insurance, that's okay. So that's a, that's an interesting change. And then also for people who do live a long way away from the entertainment, um, I can walk to get coffee. I can walk to get lunch at several places. I can walk to get groceries. So during my lunch break, I have a lot of opportunities available to me. People who are stuck out in purely residential areas, it's a lot harder in like a 45 minute lunch to be able to go and actually get to some place that's enjoyable. Got a car. Yeah. Um, So, so yeah, this might be a, that's one of the reasons I've been thinking about how, the time might be ripe for us to change some of our attitudes, but I think I'm getting ahead of my getting ahead of our conversation. Here, oh so. no, no! I I, <laughs> I, I I think I think it's extremely important. One, from a cultural perspective, but two, from a fiscal perspective. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a reason why roads all over the country are failing, simply because we've overbuilt. Right? Cities act uh, as the essentially a corporation. Right, you, they take in revenue and then they provide services or or whatever. Yeah. And uh, the amount of miles of of road that we've put in as a city since World War II is absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of that was initially funded by state and federal government. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's nice to have it there, but, you know, 30 years and you have to re, repave the whole thing. Yeah. Who's, That's who's, about the life cycle of a road. And yeah, you've said you've noticed that, right? And, and when you've started to see, look at the history of the, the city, there's kind of 30-year increments that come up where certain types yeah. of maintenance is like, due. Yeah, this, uh, this place is not new anymore. Might as well build a new subdivision. Yeah. And the incentives are not aligned between the city and uh, developers, right? Because developers build a road, they don't have to pay for it. I mean, they have to pay, pave it the first time, but like, oh, give it over to the city. Yeah. Uh, and it's a permanent liability, right? A road is a promise yeah. that we give as a city to our residents. Yeah. Well, you know, I love talking about that topic. Um, let me take a step back then with your own journey then. Um, I get excited on this stuff, so I kind of skip <laughs> ahead. So so you grow up in a, a suburb that's not walkable. You come to ISU and you travel a bit. You see what – you kind of get that taste of what walkability can do. Yeah. Um, you have your history projects where you're, um, you're studying what the history of these areas are like. And, uh, and then you're moving to Devon's Grove. So – now, um, you use the term urban activist, so where, does, where do you feel like that activism, like, to, it took root in those ideas, I guess, but then how did that, how has that matured and evolved over time? Yeah, so, um, you know as much as me, right, uh, Strong Towns is a really good organization. Um, for those of you who don't know, it was started by a, an engineer named Chuck Marone out of uh, Minnesota, uh, it's a public policy advocacy group focusing on uh, providing cities or, or restructuring the policies in, in, in towns and cities mm-hmm. to make them more not only fiscally sound, but overall just better places to live. Um, because right now we've kind of boxed ourselves into a certain type of pattern, uh, development pattern, and that's just because of the various zoning laws and ordinances and incentives that we have had. But Strong Towns has been around for, for some years now, and there are local chapters across the country that have actually done good ur- urban activism, like uh, um, change zoning laws in some cities in California, in, in Minnesota as well, figured out how to um, develop community organically by building block party kits uh, just essentially leading with a ground up approach instead of you know focusing on state politics or, or what have you it's a lot easier to affect change at a, at a local level yeah they um, but they're not coming in with any particular agenda which I think is actually what I really like about Strong Towns. Absolutely. Is there's no ideology there. There's no, like, this is, like, the solution to your problems is yeah. to do X. It's like, hey, you should read these things and understand how it's relevant to your community and then figure out what you need to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. You, you've been following what Champagne's been doing. I've found They've had some good successes. Absolutely. So the uh, Champagne uh, Strong Towns group, they call themselves the Curbanism Clubs, like CU Urbanism Club. Um, and most recently, the first thing that they've done is pass an ADU ordinance in the city of Champaign. Mm-hmm. Um, they did, themselves didn't pass it because they don't have city council members on there, but they were able to lobby the city council to, to change the, the zoning rules where you are now allowed to build an accessory dwelling unit on your lot. And 
that is a type of stuff uh, that we need to be focusing on, on as a city, right? Bloomington Normal, we need to, to have ADUs. And yeah. uh, let me explain what they are first. <laughs> so, so people aren't like, what is he, guys, what is he talking about? Um, so imagine you have a single-family home lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you could build a, a small cottage either in the backyard or on, over your uh, detached garage or, or somewhere else, another unit on your property to provide extra income for yourself or, or maybe additionally housing for, for your extended family members. For example, instead of putting someone in a uh, um, retirement home, maybe build them an ADU in your backyard. Uh, I mean, it's your property. You should be able to do something like that. And mm-hmm. as a historian, this is stuff that has happened for a very, very long time. In fact, a lot of the older houses in this uh, city have what are called uh, granny flats, where you have a smaller unit dedicated for maybe an elderly uh, woman or a widow or, or someone, what, what have you. Um, and I think it's I think it's key that we're able to allow people to do this because if not one uh, you're you're eliminating option eliminating options from people um, on you know retirement issues or expanding their income pool or, or, or what have you but two uh, ADUs are a very easy way to to raise tax revenue for the city as well mm-hmm. uh, thicken up the neighborhood without you know putting up a huge apartment complex um, yeah. and I think that's very important to you know, having neighborhood character and making sure that remains intact. Yeah. So that's what ADU units are. Yeah, I think it's a great place to start the conversation about what um, increasing density means because when people hear increased density, I think they envision a, uh, like an apartment, a large apartment complex being plopped down in the middle of a bunch of... Like a lodge. <laughs> yeah, like just very, very dense... Um, like in dramatically increasing the density of just like a particular place in a way that's out of character with the neighborhood. Um, but understanding that it's things like I'm going to have an apartment that someone can use who needs a small place to live. And that allows me to have income to keep up the rest of the house and gives them a place to live. Um, expecting that everybody's going to either live in, a apartment complex or in a single-family home is not reasonable. There's a there's a jump between those things, right? Uh, and like you said, historically, that's what people have done. Yeah. Um, you uh. you change and adapt your house. You evolve your house in different ways over up your property in ways over time to meet your needs. Certainly, a lot cheaper to do that. Yeah, yeah. So um. So yeah, the, in in most cases, the, that would not be allowed currently in Bloomington. Absolutely I think. not. I've heard that there's, I haven't, look, someone told me recently that there are, like, certain places where you can do something like that, but it's definitely not the standard procedure that we would go through. And I think there'd be a lot of red tape you'd need to cut in order to get it done, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There are some places that are grandfathered in, or there's special zoning overlays where you already, where they are kind of zoned as, like, duplexes or triplexes. Yeah. Um, But it's, like, for a regular homeowner who wants to try to do this for the first time, it's going to be completely inaccessible and, frankly, disheartening yeah. to even try to do something like that. Yeah. Yep. So that's a good uh, good example there. Um, and the way you 
advocate for that too is to try to form people together who have that interest and who can help identify the needs of the community and what to prioritize first and so mm-hmm. that's what um then that's what you're trying to do right then yeah. with uh so tell us about how how you've tried to form together this group that just met recently the the bloomington revivalists yeah so the bloomington revivalists or strong towns bloomington no more or strong towns Bologna. we haven't really decided on a name yet yeah yeah uh <laughs> we last month we actually met at my house uh, to have a discussion on infill development, uh, in particular, uh, focusing on allowing ADUs. Um, and I wanted to help start this organization because um, looking at various news articles in WGLT, I often get discouraged. Uh, we are going through somewhat of a housing crisis in Bloomington Normal, and I do feel like there is a crossroads that we are sitting at right now. We can either A, continue to expand with our sprawl like we have, and or B, focus on, on more infill development where we're, you know, building houses or ADUs or what have you in the center of town. Um, so this small group of people, actually, it was about 19 people who met at my house. Yeah. Not necessarily a small group of people yeah, I was really, in my uh, living room. I was, I was there, too, transparency, and um, very thrilled to see that many people for kind of a esoteric topic, I think, at, at its face, right? Like, yeah. let's get a group together to promote infill development. It's not exactly what you want to do on a, a Sunday afternoon for most people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would also say it was a motley crew of of various actors in the community. Oh, yeah. We, yeah. I wouldn't call our organizational uh, organization political by any means, but we've had people who I know are are, are, are on the left in the political spectrum. Uh-huh. We've got a couple libertarians in there, some traditional conservatives yeah. uh, in that group, and I, I feel like this type of organization kind of lends itself to that broad community-based efforts. Mm-hmm. Right? In, infill development, in particular, is one of those rare occasions where you have business and personal interest and workers' interest kind of aligning mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. for a perfect uh, perfect uh, coalition. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then you know, ADUs came up. What other topics came up? There were some people who had done some interesting work with trying to um, renovate older homes. That yeah. Was... Um, so we, we had a couple people talk about the possibility of using uh, the American Rescue Plan uh, funds, right, through city council to help renovate older homes on uh, the west side of town. Mm-hmm. I believe uh, it was it would be called a pink zone, where uh, a certain area of town you would have, um, you know, lessened restrictions or red tape on various projects. Yeah, because there was there was one person I can't remember her name um, was talking about how she was trying to. Renovate an old property. Oh yeah. And eventually wasn't able to because she couldn't create enough parking spaces. Like that was that was the thing that, and now the building's still there. I can't remember if it was unusable or if it's just in really bad shape. But the fact that we can't provide enough spaces for people to park—that's the the thing that's preventing that from being done. And minimum parking being another thing that the Champagne Group has advocated to change for reasons like yeah. that. Uh, it's no. it, it's all well and good if you're t- 
taking cornfields and you can turn them into whatever you want to. You can make big parking lots and multi-car off-street parking and stuff. But if you're trying to work within what you have currently, um, trying to hit some arbitrary parking target is not always feasible. Yeah. I mean, thinking about it as well, a lot of those downtown parking lots, those surface lots, especially in Washington... They're empty most of the time. Oh, yeah. The vast majority of the time. Yeah. And uh, these parking minimums for, for new development, right, where a parking space is a decent amount of the lot that you're going to be putting in, and especially if you want to put in a multi-unit building, that's like half a lot at least for, for yeah. parking. Uh, that's co- cost prohibitive for people who want to actually redevelop uh, mm-hmm. a, lo- a location uh, in the downtown or, or core areas of the city. And a lot of the people who live there, like me, are, are trying to live car light, especially younger people. You know, That house in particular that that member was talking about is literally right outside a bus stop. You can see the bus stop from the front door of that house. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of structures today would be illegal to build under our current zoning, mm-hmm. either because of uh, lot requirements or the amount of parking that's required. Um, but those are often the structures that people say, this is this is what defines Bloomington. This is what beautiful architecture looks like. It's traditional American uh, buildings. Um, it's those things you were talking to your class about, of here's where this important thing happened and it's a gas station. Yeah, oh no, there's the... <laughs> Abraham Lincoln's lost speech is now a parking garage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a plaque outside. There's Major's Hall. And uh, <laughs> it's like, this is a location where Abraham Lincoln gave one of his most famous speeches. And you look at it, and it's like, oh, it's the municipal parking garage. <laughs> <laughs> next to a next to a jail. Yeah. Very historical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's... Um, yeah, that... Uh, you, you mentioned the diversity of the political representation there that's always something i i like about strong towns too i consider myself quite centrist and when it comes to left and right i'm in the center but when it comes to local versus top-down control i'm much more of a localist where i i believe people should be able to make a lot of decisions for themselves without having to have um uh, you know the federal or state governments to requiring us to do certain things. Mm-hmm. It's just too big of a country and too big of a a state for rules to always make sense to people. And um, and so I think that unifies a an interesting group of people. It, it almost reminds me of I just read of the um, people in Normal who are trying to push for a, a ward system. There, it's like. That's kind. Of, that's cutting across too, where people who have that kind of more local yeah. view of things are literally are together. The Communist Party working with the Libertarians, yes. working with uh, Diane Benjamin, <laughs> yes. working with all these different people. <laughs> like a the weirdest, congo- uh, congo- like just the hmm. odd bedfellows. Yeah, honestly. Yeah, but I, I think it's kind of encouraging. Not kind of encouraging. I find it very encouraging because what we hear is like, oh, we're so polarized. We can't get along with each other. If you can find issues on the ground that are local that people agree with, it, it doesn't matter as much what color, uh, you know, what flag you're flying. It's uh, just let's get together and try to change something. Yeah, because um, in, in the end of the day, it is our community 
that we're living in, mm-hmm. right? Um, and decisions are made by the people who show up, right? Most of the time at city council meetings, when they're trying to do a zoning change, specifically, if you remember last week in Normal with the Wintergreen subdivision, yeah, most of the people who showed up at that meeting were naysayers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but for people who don't know, that's there's they're trying uh, the proposals have slightly higher density of residential housing there that allowed duplexes at least duplexes i don't know if it's more than that but i have duplexes instead of single family homes and people are extremely bothered by this um it shows the kind of the uphill climb culturally that needs to go that we need to go through to figure out how to do infill in a way that everyone can um trying to get people to understand this idea of why this is important and it's not just a a preference right it's a the, all the good things that come out of it the community the increased density provides more revenue to the city at less cost there's a financial aspect of it um, so th- there's so many ways to look at it but it is a change from how things have been for the last 70 80 years and so it'll take some time yeah I mean if it's that if that's all that they've known growing up and the connotations that they get for higher density yeah right uh, you have no frame of reference of what uh, a walkable neighborhood looks like or a neighborhood that involves all of these different housing types, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have that frame of reference, you're, you're going to kind of get defensive yeah. or kind of get scared. Well, and I would say also if the, if the increased density isn't done right, like it's not like just density on itself is great. It can also be done poorly, and so I have not looked enough at the wintergreen plans to know if I would think it was done good or bad. But you can also, like I said, plop a, you could have a bunch of single-family one- to two-level houses and then put a eight-story apartment complex right in the middle of it, too. That also doesn't, that doesn't work. That's too abrupt, right? I mean, looking at the subdivision, too, it's pretty far from anything that's commercial or whatever yeah, or yeah. at least trying to walk places right it's right I believe it's right by a major road yeah um, well speaking of, speaking of being near commercial places that's another interesting thing um, the, the term is mixed use zoning um, what are your what are your thoughts on that like uh, maybe we can riff on that a little bit having commercial and residential be closer to each other yeah so really interestingly when I was doing my history project for the Dimmitz Grove neighborhood I got to put together uh, these really old maps of, of the neighborhood from 1900 from 1907 1953 and you had stores on the streets, right? That's the corner store. <gasps> what? I know, right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, no dedicated parking whatsoever. I'm going to be honest. Madness, right? I might have to stop now. Yeah, it's, it's scaring me. <laughs> oh, no. But yeah, corner stores. I mean, it's a concept we have. It's, it's, idolized, in, uh, it's idolized in shows that we watch. And that was wow. what you did. You go down to the corner store. But we don't have those anymore. Yeah, and... There's there's a there's a store building that's on Evans Street that's now just some guy's house, but it obviously looks like it was a small store mm-hmm. right there. Um, and I, I really do think that having this mixed use, I mean, you need to have 
obviously don't have industry, heavy industry in yes. someone's neighborhood. That's yes. a reason, original reason why we have zoning in the first place. But I think it's okay to have a coffee shop or, or a, a, a local grocery store in your neighborhood, right? Especially if you, you know, forgot to get a stick of butter for your recipe or you're too lazy to make coffee in the morning and you look right outside, you see the coffee shop, right? Um, yeah. So when I was living in Europe... Right, you were no more than a ten-minute walk uh, from a grocery store, and uh, in fact, refrigerators in the United Kingdom are a lot smaller than American refrigerators because oftentimes you would stop on that you store know, on the way like home. That. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I'd say more than okay. I would love to have a coffee shop in our neighborhood that people got together with, um, you know, just to get to to run into people and get to know them more. You might not be at the point with your neighbors where you'd say. Hey, do you want to come over to my house to have a drink? Yeah. But if you just happen to run into them, you sit down and get to know them better, strengthen community, um, have a community meeting there, right, yeah. to talk about some of the issues that are going on. There's, are... One of my neighbors has a block party every summer. It's always one of the highlights of our summer. And it was interesting because last year, I live in Eastgate, and a lot of the basements were hit by sewer, sewer overflows during the floods. Not the floods, the um, big storms. And got a bunch of sewage in their basement, did oh, a lot of yeah. damage, health issues. It was really bad. And so the neighborhood got together and advocated really effectively for having our sewer system repair be prioritized more highly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was at those block parties had never had any sort of like quote unquote political element to it. But this year when we got together, um, our council member, Jeff Crable, came there and spoke a little bit about that issue. Yep. There was also just a bit of information up for people to learn more about what the status was and the progress of it and stuff. And um, so it was by no means a political rally. We spent most of the time with the you know kids throwing water balloons at each other and people hanging out, eating different kinds of pie. But... <laughs> that was something that also united the community, right? It was it was a really interesting thing to see that extra little thing of like, let, you know, civic engagement combined with that community element. Yeah. And you, you you just you get that when people are able to come together with both the social and the the practical dynamics. And that's what I really like about our neighborhood meetings at Dimmitts Grove. Sometimes we're meeting people's backyards. Sometimes at the art gallery, sometimes mm-hmm. at the park, but almost always, I mean, we have an agenda. We talk about stuff, but like, there are people bring, uh, bring drinks. There's mm-hmm. some food. Kids are there. It's really fun. And, and you get to know your neighbors, but also you're able to work together as a group to yeah. get things done. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, that. So I, I think a lot too about like infills, infills important, but then we have these other areas and I would just in general say everything outside of veterans not exactly but just for the sake of simplicity everything uh, east of Veterans Parkway so it's not like we're just gonna it's not like our proposal is to just destroy all those houses right that would be really dumb that would be yeah really like really tragic to destroy that aspect of our history right but I've been thinking about how can those places take that next step to increase their sense of community and although it would make a lot of people uncomfortable I do think adding some commercial elements into there I think once people tried it they would like it I think having a place like a coffee shop or a a restaurant that was there that was 
part of their community. I, I, I oh, there's traffic, people driving in and out. I don't know. Like, but if it's your space, if it's just for people in your community, right? Yeah. Marketing it towards you, you don't need to drive there. Uh huh. Well, there's no parking spaces. Well, yeah, <laughs> and that's also it's kind of like a chicken and the egg thing, right? It's like, oh, well, if there's no parking spaces, where will people park? They're like, well, if there's no parking spaces, they won't drive there. Yeah, so there then they won't be there. And then the people who want coffee from around where you live, will get it. That, that'll be their place. Yeah. Right? So um, but when you build the parking, then they come. So, yeah. I, I do think that one of the best ways to, I think it's called, what, uh, what you're talking about, sprawl repair. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it is densifying neighborhoods. One, ADUs are a must. Right. Well, there's um, so much unused land in these places. Like, when you start looking at where could you put a house and when yeah. you go out into a suburb, like, you could put so many more houses there. Absolutely. If you were just, you know, if, if you were um, inclined to do so. Yeah. Right. So, ADUs are a big thing. The other thing would be an ACU, an accessory oh. commercial unit. Oh, actually, yeah. they have those. Yeah. If you go on Front Street, uh, corner of Front and uh, Gridley, I think, okay. There, uh, there's a house, and then directly on the front corner is a hair salon attached to that yes, house. Yes, yes. Okay, I was I was thinking that was what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. No. but uh, those type of businesses that are, quote-unquote, non-intrusive, right? There's a barbershop in my neighborhood as well. Um, I think would be very good where you have, like, you know, essentials, maybe a, a hair store, uh, a barbershop, or a small grocery store on someone's lot. Yeah. Uh, they, they've done this uh, in the pandemic in, in some other cities, such as uh, Seattle, Portland's, where someone decided, hey, they made the por- uh, the permitting process so easier to make a business, they open a business in their garage. Yeah. Well, and also by, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm getting into your subject matter here, but historically, that's how things were done, right? Absolutely. People worked where they lived, and you'd have like, you'd start selling stuff out of your house, and then you would have the commercial area in front, you'd live in back or above, and then as your business matured and developed and you outgrew the space, you would have enough money to go afford a separate space, like a separate storefront. Absolutely. The barrier to entry of a of a um, commercial activity is much, much lower than if you're like, you know what, I'm gonna sell doilies, right? I enjoy I enjoy crocheting and I'm gonna sell the things that I crochet and I'm gonna put a sign up on my front door and then I'll just have my entry room be a place people can come in and buy those for me. And then if your doily business doesn't take off what are you out? Like, it, very little. You need to redecorate your front room, but at least you don't have yeah. to sign a multi-thousand dollar year lease. Yes, <laughs> have to pay rent to somebody else, you know, and you just kind of see, hey, is this thing viable? We do it on Etsy, right? Yeah. Etsy does it online. You could do it out of your house, too. Absolutely. But we're just very, we're very uncomfortable with that in this culture. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I got to go back to what I said before. I'm doing commercial activity out of my house. I'm just not having customers come to my door, which I think is the big difference. But it seems like somewhat of an arbitrary, to, no. not arbitrary, but it, it seems like not as big of a distinction as you might make it yeah. be. Um, I also think that, you know, like stiffening of that barrier for the, you know, economic participation, right? Where we, where we raise the, you, you raise the drawbridge or whatever. Uh, I think that has an aspect that aspect plays into the overtaking uh, of small business by 
major corporations. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, because they've got those means to come in and run the huge shop yeah. and to lobby for the incentives from the municipalities and yeah. the state and federal government. And, yeah. But if you're if you're now, like, for example, one of the one of the things that our, our Strong Towns group uh, is wanting to do eventually is to help lower the economic barriers for participation in, in, in these cities. Um Right. If you're now able to work out of your house or have a small business out of your house or or maybe rent a stall in, in, a, in a location instead of just running the whole front mm-hmm. of a building, mm-hmm. uh, that makes it a lot easier for anybody to go in and, 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 and start a business. Yeah. Right? You can try and fail. Um, and I think that's very important. We've, we've kind of added too many barriers. So regular people, people who don't have money, you know. I'm not going to get a loan for $10 million to start a doily business. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's key to help revitalize, add some vibrancy to, to the downtown. Yeah. Because, you know, every city in America essentially has got a Walmart. We've got McDonald's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right? But there's only certain places that got, you know, the, the small mom and pop flares. Yeah. Right? That makes Red, your community. Red Raccoon yeah. is a draw. Red, I, Red Raccoon is something I think of because they've been highly successful, and is, people come from all around to go to that store, and they've been yeah. so successful that now they can expand into they're expanding into another larger building that's next door to them downtown. Yeah, uh, SpiceWorks is another great example of starting in one place and then outgrowing the space, moving to another one. Same thing with Pop Up Chicken. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. And this is what is called incremental development. Yeah. And, and, and largely our, our modern zoning and political processes today have kind of shut that down. Once and, once and done, yeah. Build, but, build all at once to a finished state, right? Yeah, um, but that's how it was done for centuries, right? Yeah. M- most of American history, you had incremental developments where you, you, know, st- you, you get a, a plot of land or whatever in the center of town. You build a small shack or whatever. Over time, you build wealth. You're able to build a larger building, maybe move into a larger building. But mm-hmm. over time, it's small steps. So you're making small risks instead of, you know, bet the entire mortgage or whatever. Yeah. On a business venture that's going to fail you and you're screwed. Yeah. 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 What you, um, what I found so interesting about what you were just talking about is the, um, combination of things that you would typically associate again with political liberals and political conservatives so you went from talking about the needs of the poor in the community the people who don't have money the people who are just trying to get ahead right and how do you build wealth mm-hmm. but then also disrespect for tradition and history of that's that's like the quote-unquote conservative part of it is like hey this has worked for hundreds of years throughout all kinds of different places uh-huh. Um, Strong Towns calls it spooky wisdom. <laughs> like, there's just, there's wisdom in traditions that we can mine, but then yeah. also say, like, hey, we need to be caring for the people that are worse off in our communities and try to help empower them to do things. And Absolutely. Those two things are not in conflict with each other yeah. at all. And I love that the, the things that come up in these conversations do both of those things. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the other points that you've thought a lot about is like quote unquote good and bad developers oh yeah so let's talk about what a developer does and how how kind of your view of how things work now and then how they how they should be done you know what 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 topics come to mind with that absolutely so you know 
good and bad developers. Mm-hmm. You've got small and large developers, right? Uh, the small scale developer is like the guy's doing this as as a side hustle, right? He he's a, they're ingrained in the community. For example, I'm, I'm gonna give I'm gonna shout out to David Parker. Oh yeah, right. In yeah. his train projects right now. Yep, um, he came on the podcast a, a bit ago. Scroll down a couple episodes, you'll find David <laughs> Parker's. Uh, yeah, thing. Yep. and uh, people like uh, Lori Bell and Arthur Haynes with West Market Street Council. Mm-hmm. Those are what I call small developers, where they're doing something the first time. They're they're having a smaller project, right? It's not a multi multi multi-million dollar uh, facility that they're building or trying to build but they're really wanting to improve the community so when I see small developers I see hey it's not really a company that's coming in from like New York or Washington or whatever to extract wealth from this community through through rental agreements or, or what have you um, these are people who truly care and want to make the community better yeah right uh, so those are small developers I really appreciate them mm-hmm and they're basically, honestly, getting screwed over by our, our permitting system right now. And I, I talked to David, I talked to uh, Arthur and Lori, and as a first-time person navigating this, you're not going to have enough money for a lawyer, right? Yeah. Um, and you really shouldn't have to have a lawyer yeah, to do that. Yeah, do these things, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. But these huge corporations that come in from out of town, out of state, build a huge apartment complex... Or a big development that takes up an entire block, uh, and they use the empty commercial on the bottom as a tax write-off, and they're charging, you know, too high for rents for students or whatever in, in those upper things, and they're cutting corners on construction, and yeah. it's literally a cookie-cutter design. You can see the exact same design here in Seattle, in Portland, in Austin, Texas. It's because it's they've got it down to a financial science on how to extract the most money from each community. Yeah. And these people are not here to add value to our community. They're here to make money uh, and leave when they're building <laughs> basically runs its lifespan, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the deal is between small developers and these huge developers is that small developers often have that respect for history have that respect for community, right? They're building something on a local scale. They're trying to solve a problem. Um, large developers are using cookie-cutter templates or whatever, so you have this destruction of, of local pride. It's like, oh, another boxy building coming up. I, yeah. I mean, I really like Uptown Normal, but, like, all those renderings for Trail East and Trail West right now are, are giving me big developer vibe. Yes, yes, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Uh, I, in my opinion, they should have stopped with fixing the... They should have stopped with fixing the infrastructure and then um, just loosened up the zoning enough to allow development around there. But Normal's mode has been more of we're going to be really highly prescriptive about what exactly needs to go there. So, like, that bottom floor, that that building needs to be a restaurant like and yeah. and Chris Coos will say it doesn't need to be I guess technically it doesn't but they would need to like change the zoning laws in order to have it not be and so it just it is it's an empty space is really better than just something being there I don't understand but they just have a view they have a vision of what they want that circle to be and that's fine so and that's totally what- on board with fix all the fix the sewers fix the roads get the high speed internet going uh-huh. in there like enable all that stuff you got the fertilizer in the soil right and then just 
let it grow. You don't need to like. <laughs> that's that's what I call top-down planning. The top-down planning, right? Yeah. And yeah. you often don't get what the the, 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 the desired effects, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, to go back to the developers, um, another unfortunate one, whether big or small, is people who just buy buildings and hold on to them, like front and center. Oh. Um, so don't get me started. That's also something that's just such a tragedy for our community, too. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> These are what I would... I don't even call them developers. I call them real estate speculators. Yeah, vultures. Right? They're not yeah. developing anything. <laughs> and it's... Oh, you, you got me heated on this. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they hold on to property for, what, 20, 30 years, don't do anything to it, and then as soon as there's an economic boom, boom, they sell it for with a multi-million dollar profit or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or... In the meantime, they use it as like a tax write-off or whatever. It, it's totally useless to the community, and the only purpose. Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, if I won the lottery, I I would uh, try my best to buy those buildings yeah. and refurbish them. Yeah. But I don't have money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a shame, and it, and it goes back to the, the message of. It's so easy to get disempowered and frustrated by these things, right? Of like, oh my gosh, there's like the federal transportation bill. How's that money going to get used? There's the state highways that run through our cities and interfere with our ability to develop because we can't control them. Um, all these things that we can't do anything about, and it's hard not to get discouraged. Out of rich out-of-state people who are buying properties here and letting them degrade just to suck money out, but. In the meantime, we can talk to our local city staff. We can talk to our local elected officials. We can try to help them understand that, like, the reality on the ground at this place needs to be changed. And, yeah. and often what we're talking about here with with our Strong Towns group is not even necessarily the city doing anything more. It's them doing less. It's like, hey, can you not get in the... Don't can get in the just, way. Can you just make it easy, like, not interfere with this person to renovate this building? Can you not interfere with this um, this guy trying to turn a train car into an Airbnb? Can you not interfere with this <laughs> grocery store going up? Like, um, you know, so, so to be fair to the other side, if you're making an unsafe building, that's not good. If you're not no. following appropriate safety standards and you can create things that are prone to fire or medical issues, like... I get that. Mm-hmm. I also get that if you're making something that would um, directly interfere with a neighboring property's ability to use their property, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't buy, I don't put really any stock at all onto like this thing's going to decrease my property values. I think it's got to be a real extreme use to do that. Oh, is a um, new tire factory going to be built right outside your house? Yes. So that, that would be. <laughs> I would focus more on like, you know, okay, a pig farm can't go next door because that's got toxic stuff that's flowing into my yard Aww. versus like, um, versus property value arguments. I mean, there's reasons for things to be there, but, um, but yeah, can, can the laws just do less and allow people to try these things and just, we handle what happens with them because that's how things have been for all of human history up Absolutely. until about the last hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, so, well, I, uh, hope that we can have some success with this. I, I'd like over the next few 
episodes of Podbean to invite some of the people from our group on to talk about the oh, things yes. that they're working on. They're Absolutely. the experts, and I I, uh, I feel like we gave a good overview. We have our direct interests of things. Um, yeah, we do have a Facebook group. We've got a Facebook page. Yep, strong. I'll put those in the links. The Strong Towns Revivalist. Oh, no, yep. no, Bloomington Revivalist. Bloomington right? Revivalist. Uh, strong Towns. Well, yeah. no. Um, we'll if it, figure if, out the name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to be exclusionary, but Bloomington Normals just, it doesn't really roll off. Blono also just sounds weird. I'm sorry. It does. I've been here for a long time and I, it does not roll off the tongue. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a great one. So, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so if people want to learn more, they can go on there. You can check out yeah. the Strong Towns website. Um, there's a whole nother thing. We could do a whole nother many hours on cars and transportation yeah um so we can leave that out there but i want to i want to bring a few of the people on if they're willing to talk to us about what they're seeing in their life and what their passions are and how they can what they'd like to have to um to to move forward be cool if we could get someone from champagne to come too absolutely Um, maybe we could go to them do a visit and do a, a remote episode um you know some people in that group. I do, right? yes. Okay. They're also in our Facebook group as well. They are? Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. Maybe I'll eyes uh, on the wall. That'd be kind of fun to hear what they're doing. What they've done and what drove them and how they yeah. got together. That'd be nice. So um, appreciate you coming here on a Saturday afternoon to talk and for also um, well I guess for three things, coming and talking to me, putting the group together and then overall just your passion for the community, it really shines through. Oh yeah. Well, you know, the next meeting that we're having as a group will be the 26th uh, at 6 at the uh, UU Church. Okay, that's yeah. where it's going to be. Oh, good. Yeah. We got a, We got a, another space for it. Yeah, we got another space for it. Nice. Uh, Carl yeah. Bailey Smith is able to pull some strings with the church elders there. Nice. So nice. they don't have to raid my house again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was actually... Uh, it was... Your, your house was a really nice place. It was just there's too many people. So well, I don't have enough chairs for 19 people. Yeah, I was barely think- have enough chairs for 10 people. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking 10 max. So that was a pleasant. That's a good problem to have. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's the 26th at what time are we meeting? 6 p.m. 6 at p.m. the Universalist Unitarian Church, which okay. I believe is on. Oh gosh, it's on that corner. Yeah, it's right across the street John's. from. Um, so it's by St. John's. It's Ewing uh, Manor. Ewing Manor. Oh, by what there. is it? I don't know. We'll yeah. figure it out. We'll, so it will be in the description. Yep, sounds good. Um, and of course, stop by Little Beaver Brewery as well too. They're always coming out with new beers, and uh, I like their fancy stuff. I like good the sandwiches. Yeah, you enjoyed your sandwich. Yeah, very cool. Um, yeah, I always enjoy the more uh, weird, pretentious stuff. Like if it's got hints of multiple types of fruit in it, I'm all game. But <laughs> they also have uh, more more uh, typical beer for for people who aren't ready to get that adventurous and that's always just the thing with little beaver i encourage people is just come in explain to the the bartender what you're interested in and they've got something that'll fit your palate here so don't be intimidated that there's just going to be uh, hipsters like me here so. <laughs> <laughs> well thanks noah i'll talk to you later oh yeah see you later